0: Welcome to the Columbia Business School Ideas at Work podcast. In this edition, Professor Jeffrey Heal talks with Columbia Ideas at Work Managing Editor Kimberly Kinchin about how new approaches to risk assessment in the face of climate change can help decision makers negotiate the uncertain future. Professor Heal, can you start by talking about why you wrote this paper, uncertainty and decision in climate change economics?
1: Climate change is occurring, but there's still a lot of uncertainty. We don't know how fast it's going to occur. We don't know exactly what the consequences will be. In fact, we don't even know roughly what the consequences will be in some cases. We know that there's a potential for some very disruptive effects. So it's a sort of a classic situation of risk, and, and the businesses are very used to facing risk of this sort, where you, you know you know there's sort of things might change out there and they might change for the better or for the worse, but you don't know exactly how this is going to happen or quite when it's going to happen. There's a number of different aspects of this research, but the general aim is to try to quantify these risks insofar as that's possible and try to recommend policies and ways of thinking about uh, these risks that uh, enable policymakers to, to deal with them appropriately.
0: One idea you emphasize in the paper is that assessing risk associated with climate change is distinct from the typical approach to risk management. Would you explain why that's the case?
1: It's quite different from the way that other schools conventionally teach uh, decision makers to think about risk. I mean, the way we usually teach decision makers to think about risk is to say that there's a sort of relatively well-defined quantitative information about the risk that we face. So mean the classic example, would be throwing a dice. And you have the same sort of quantitative information. You know, you've got a one in six chance of each number between one and six. Although you don't know what the outcome will be, you know exactly what the possible outcomes are. The thing about climate change is that we really don't have that kind of quantitative information about the risk. We might know that certain things are more likely than others, but we have difficulty in giving precise likelihood ratings to them. If you think about, for example, finance and investment policies in stock markets or other securities markets, there's the same issue arises there. And indeed, many of the techniques that I'm using in the research on climate are also techniques that have been used uh, in the last year or so uh, to study financial markets and to uh, look at how one should make decisions there. You generally don't have good, precise, quantitative information about the odds facing you. So if you're investing in the stock market, for example, we know that the stock market movement is essentially random and very hard to predict, but we don't know exactly what the right random model is. Until recently, people essentially ignored that in, in modeling the stock market and essentially assumed that they knew what the the model generating the randomness was. Now they've progressed beyond that and recognizing that they're in the same place as, as we are when we're talking about climate change, that you, know, you have some information, but you don't have good quantitative information and you don't have of interesting that this is not a problem this issue of the fact that we don't have any kind of quantitative information on the risks uh, which is so characteristic of the climate area is not a problem that's unique to the climate area Um, it's one that businesses are increasingly recognizing is, is common to many business environments and we've sort of A lot of our analytical work has kind of neglected this dimension of the problem in the past. So the techniques that are being deployed in the climate context here are very similar to techniques that are being deployed in in many other areas, as I said, of finance, of macroeconomics, and indeed of business decision-making in general. We're seeing the evolution of a new frontier of modeling risks, which is hard to quantify, qualitative rather than quantitative risks.
0: Given that we don't have good numbers or a precise model, how do you then actually measure risk under these circumstances?
1: First of all, if we look at the information that climate scientists have put together about the uncertainty that we face in the climate area, and one of the key things in this field is something called the equilibrium climate sensitivity, which is uh, a number which tells us how much the temperature will increase in response to a doubling of the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And uh, a doubling of concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere is something we will reach around about 2050, 2060 on current trends, so it's something that's going to happen within the lifetime of, of our students and many of our alumni. And one of the things we show is that there's, uh, while many scientists have estimated this sort of so-called equilibrium climate sensitivity, this response of the temperature to a doubling of greenhouse gases, they come up with very different estimates. You know, some of them think that it might be as little as a two degree increase in temperature. We'd certainly notice it, but it wouldn't be massively destructive. On the other hand, a 5 or 6 degree increase in temperature could be absolutely massively destructive. What's an unfortunate decision-maker to do, uh, given that some scientists are telling him, well, this might be as bad as 6 degrees, and others saying are saying it might be as mild as 2 or 2.5 degrees? You know, there's really no way of ranking these scientists because they're all very credible scientists with very good track records in their own fields. That's the problem that we face, and that's a problem that a lot of people in the field called decision theory have actually been looking at over the last 10 to 15 years, and I think there's a growing recognition that we have somehow to learn to grapple with risks that can't be quantified, we can't simply wait to make decisions on these things until we have better information, because by then it might be too late to do much. That's the issue. Now, the sort of techniques that we look at, uh, there's a range of techniques. One very simple technique, which has been quite seriously recommended by a number of very prominent decision makers, is just to focus on the worst possible outcome. So if you really don't know how likely all of the possibilities are, but there is one which is really, really bad, then focus on that one and pursue a policy which is designed to minimize the chances of that one occurring. That's what's known in the literature as maxi-min, and it's a slightly extreme and rather risk-averse approach, but it is one which, as I said, a lot of very serious thinkers have recommended as the right thing to do and as an appropriate thing to do under certain circumstances. So that's one of the options that we look at in our paper. Another approach is to, to try to develop some sense of the likelihood of the different scientists being correct so that you can kind of weight their predictions and perhaps give more weight to the predictions of people you think are more likely to be right and less weight to the weight of predictions of people you think are less likely to be right. That's a more difficult thing to do because you have to have some sense of how good the various predictors are who are bringing you different predictions. But if you're able to do that, that's probably a much better way to do this. If you're able to develop that sense of who is good and who's not good, then taking them all into account but giving them more or less weight depending on how well you think of them what ultimately we recommend and have done in some of our own research.
0: And what do you conclude from using these two approaches? I'm especially thinking of what policy architects and decision makers should take away from your analysis.
1: I think that um, there's a number of sort of conclusions we can take away. One I think is that it does make sense to look quite seriously at the worst cases. Uh, And that's something which actually hasn't been done. I mean, many of the reports written for decision makers For example, the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. um, These reports tend to focus on the the middle-of-the-range outcomes, and tell you that the the most likely outcome is somewhere between, say, a 2 and a 4 degree increase in temperature. And they tend to not put much focus at all on what we call the tail outcomes, the uh, really severe changes in temperature. It's some of the severe changes in temperature that can cause most damage and that we would probably need to be focusing on some of these worst-case outcomes more than we have been, although not exclusively. Hurricane Sandy was a category one hurricane. We have to worry about whether we could get something like Sandy, but a category four or a category five hurricane, in which case the wind speeds would be twice as much, and the storm surge would be perhaps two or three feet higher, and the amount of damage could be exponentially greater than the damage we had last time. Second recommendation we take away is that there are some things that can be done in the area of climate change which makes sense whether you have a mild climate change or a very serious climate change. A lot of those consist of basically hardening infrastructure. Uh, for example, in the case of New York City in Sandy, there's a strong case for doing quite a lot to make the city more resilient, whether one worries about the worst case or, or the best case. Because in any of those cases, uh, the city is likely to be subject to, you know, to storm surges and floods uh, within the next 20 to 30 years. So there are these options out there, these policy options out there, which we call no regrets policy options, which means that they basically, whatever the outcome is, whether it's high, medium, or low climate change, these things make sense. And so we need to focus on those two.
0: You make a distinction between different types of uncertainty. Would you talk about why that's important here?
1: There's a a number of different types of uncertainty that we face in the context of climate change. There's uh, what in the article we call scientific uncertainty, and that uncertainty that arises because of the, the nature of the scientific models. All climate models are necessarily considerable simplifications of the real climate system. And to represent the real climate system would be just too complicated. We'd need millions and millions of equations. So every scientist simplifies in some way. And, and you simplify, you introduce errors and in different climate models simplify in different ways and introduce different errors. So because of that, they make different forecasts. In the paper, where we show th- the estimates that the different models produce of the equilibrium climate sensitivity, and these estimates, as I, think I said before, range from as little as 2 degrees to as much as 7 or 8 degrees. And these differences in these estimates really arises purely from what we call model uncertainty. The scientists in making manageable approximations to an incredibly complex system, have chosen to simplify in different ways, and those different simplifications lead to different forecasts. So That's one source of uncertainty uh, on the purely scientific side. Another is that these climate models are actually very, very complicated and what we call non-linear models, and they have the property that if you take the same climate model and you run it twice from initial conditions that are only very, very slightly different, they can make quite significantly different forecasts. They show what mathematicians call sensitive dependence on initial conditions, which is also popularly referred to as chaotic behavior. And this makes them also quite difficult to use for forecasting and generates another source of uncertainty. In addition to that, we've got a huge amount of what we call socio-economic uncertainty, which is really just uncertainty about how the social and economic system will behave in response to changes in climate or threats of changes in climate. For example, we really don't know what our emissions of greenhouse gases will be 10 years from now, let alone 50 or 60 years from now. And of course, that's one of the principal things that drives any climate model. Uh, given a, a scientific climate model, you have to feed in forecasts of future greenhouse gas emissions in order to have that model make a prediction of future temperatures. And those greenhouse gas emissions are not a scientific fact. They're a socioeconomic fact. I and mean, what you think those will be depends on how effective you think the world will be in controlling climate change. And that in turn depends on how effective you think we'll be in developing new technologies. How effective will we be in moving from fossil fuels over to nuclear power or to renewable energy? There's also other forms of uncertainty. For example, the last IPCC report said that sea level by the end of the century would rise somewhere in the region of 2 to 3 feet. People have since then observed that things like the um, ice sheets in Greenland and the ice sheets in Antarctica are melting, and melting much, much faster than they were ever expected to. And because of that, they've raised forecasts of sea level rise up to about 6 feet by the end of the century. But there's a lot of argument about that. Uh, and Some people still think that maybe three or four feet is an appropriate estimate for sea level rise at the end of the century. Some people think it could be as much as 10 or 15 feet. Again, there's a huge difference there. Uh, you know, three or four feet, we could sort of manage 10 or 15 feet. New York would be totally underwater. And so are many cities in the U.S., and many cities around the world. That's another source of uncertainty.
0: For someone who's sitting in the C-suite, whether or not their business model is dependent on fossil fuels... What are the key things to keep in mind as they increasingly make decisions related to climate change?
1: What people have to keep in mind is that the climate is changing. I think everybody recognizes that now. And that they will be affected in two ways. They'll be affected by the change in climate itself. And this could affect, I know, for example, if you're a maker of sports equipment, it could affect the kinds of sports that people do and how much they do them. And if you're a maker of drinks, it could affect the kinds of drinks that people want. If you're a constructor, a tractor making housing or other buildings, it will affect the kinds of buildings that have to be constructed. So there's going to be an effect on the demand side resulting from changes in climate. There's also going to be an effect on the regulatory environment. Sometime within the next, uh, I don't know, 10 to 20 years, it's extremely likely that the world will, will come to realize just how serious climate change could be. And we'll take policies of a more dramatic sort than we've considered so far to stop it, and those will involve big reductions in the use of fossil fuels. If you're running a company which is dependent on fossil fuels in any direct or indirect way, you need to be aware of the fact that uh, there could be very, very effective policies to discourage people from using these sometime in the next decade or so. There are other industries that will be affected more directly, I and mean, agriculture will probably be affected quite dramatically. There are forecasts made actually by some people here at Columbia that by the end of the century, the U.S. production of most of its major food crops could drop by more than half. So in both the farming community and in the food processing community, uh, people who make processed foods will see a dramatic change in the availability of foodstuffs and probably a huge increase in the price of the raw materials there.
0: Last month, President Obama made a major speech on climate change, which many commentators viewed as a signal of a significant policy shift for the United States. How much does U.S. policy on emissions matter?
1: The two biggest emitters in the world are the US and China, and between them they produce over 40% of total global emissions, and so the US and China between them can basically solve this problem, or not solve it, so the US's position is very important. The US actually has reduced its carbon emissions in the last few years, not a lot, but some, which is encouraging. That's mainly due to the displacement of coal in electricity generation by natural gas, which is cleaner, not totally clean, but cleaner, and by wind. And there's been a big growth in both wind and gas-fired power stations in the last, uh, roughly the last decade. The the changes that have occurred have really not been the result of U.S. policy. The U.S. has reduced its greenhouse gas emissions, but more or less serendipitously because of the um, uh, technology development that had nothing to do with the government. The government has encouraged the development of the wind industry, to be fair. There are some subsidies for wind power, Uh, but uh, fracking was a completely sort of uh, extraneous event. I think that for real progress to be made, the U.S. will have to adopt much more positive and emphatic policies in this area. And I think that will have to be bipartisan. At the moment, the Republican Party is either sceptical about climate change or they don't want to do anything about it, even if they acknowledge that it exists. And I don't think you'll see any major change in the U.S. position uh, until the Republican Party changes its position on this, which I'm sure they will do at some point, but I don't know when. And Obama's proposals make a lot of sense, but he's proposing essentially a set of executive actions and a set of uh, regulations that can be promulgated by the Environmental Protection Agency. And those are all fairly limited. The EPA and the executive don't have a lot of legal scope to take strong actions in this area.
0: To learn more about Professor Heal's research, visit www.gsb.columbia.edu backslash ideas at work. Thank you for listening to the Columbia Business School Ideas at Work podcast.